Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. Avoid the mistake of David. Don't use relationships to gain power. Now there's a difference between I know someone who may be able to help and I need to get to know someone who can help me. You understand the difference, don't you? God never intended relationships to be something we use. People aren't things that we use. People are persons that we love, and that's a huge difference. You know, most things in this world boil down to relationships. Knowing the right people can help us get ahead and serving one another in love is certainly a biblical concept. Well, today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares cautions us to ensure we're building relationships for the right reasons. When we get to know someone, it's not because of what we can get from the relationship, but because God created them in His image and they're precious to Him. Here's Pastor Mike with a message about power plays. Would you not agree that the disciples were sure a privileged group of people? Can you imagine being one of the 12 apostles? If you have a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 10 and think about how incredible it must have been to have on your resume that you were personally discipled by Jesus Christ himself. Think about that one. Front row seats to every sermon he ever preached. Freedom to ask him any question you had about theology or life or what you should do in a relationship. Think about that. You got Christ every day, three years, day in and day out. Incredible privilege, incredible access. But with all that privilege and all that access and what you would hope would be all that maturity that would flow from that kind of access to God himself, some of the questions that they did actually ask Christ may surprise you just a little bit. Look at this passage in Mark chapter 10. Drop your eyes down to verse 35 and see what two of the 12 apostles came asking Jesus one day. James and John, sons of Zebedee, came to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. <laughs> That's setting him up, isn't it? Would you do for me whatever I'm about to ask you? Jesus, smart man, says, Well, you know, what is it exactly that you'd like me to do? They replied, well, you know, if it wouldn't be too big of a deal, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Okay. <laughs> now, if you're a Jew in that day, and even today, if you think through Scripture clearly, you understand that Christ is one day going to sit on a throne in Jerusalem, ruling not only Israel, but the entire earth. That was what the prophet Isaiah meant when he said the government will rest on his shoulders. That's what the angel said to Mary. He'll rule the world. And there's going to be this huge inauguration of Jesus the Messiah who's going to rule the earth. Now, think about this. These two guys are saying, you know, it's pretty cool being an apostle and all that, wandering around and doing all these things and teaching and counseling. That's great. <clears throat> but, you know, when you set up this government, I just wonder, my brother and I want to know if, like, we can be the vice presidents. Would that be okay with you? And if you know the scripture very well, Matthew 20 says they even resorted to bringing their mom in. Mom says, yeah, I think my boys would be really good at this. <laughs> now, if you want to be crass, just call it a real thirst for power. Call it a, a lust for influence. Call it an attraction to authority. 
if you want to be subtle and you want to include yourself in it, you may put it in these kinds of terms. It's that human desire to be recognized for, you know, who I am and what I can do, my potential. It's being considered a significant part of the team and being important. And doesn't everybody want that? Whatever you want to call it, underneath every human being and the surface and their diplomacy and how they interact with people, there is a desire that we have to be important. Just want to be, I just want to be recognized. I want to be significant. I want to make my mark. I want to have a part in what's going on in my world. It's veiled in many ways. It's interpreted in many ways. We strategize to do it in a variety of ways. But a basic human drive we have is to be important. Now, some of it is not only excusable, some of it is God-given and understandable. But a lot of it is selfish, and a lot of it is driven by personal gain and a personal sense of becoming uh, an important, worthy person in the eyes of other people. And distinguishing that is very hard because power and influence and authority is intoxicating. It will lure people in, and they, when they have it, they will want to have more of it. And when they don't have it, they'll want to get some. And if they've had some and had it taken away, they want to get it back. And they'll oftentimes do whatever it takes to get in the place where they feel as important as they want to feel, where they will be recognized the way they feel they ought to be recognized, that they'll have the effect and influence on people that they think they should have. And we got to be careful, because even people in the front row of the disciples of Christ can be intoxicated by a lust for power. The answer Jesus gives in this passage is worth its own sermon, and we're not going to look at that. Just suffice it to say Jesus isn't too hot on those kinds of questions, and yet godly people seem to be asking them all the time. You might be surprised to note that in Luke 22, the night before Jesus was crucified, in the upper room of all places, after three years of being in seminary with Jesus as your professor, there was an argument that broke out amongst the disciples the night before he was crucified, and the text says that the argument that broke out amongst the disciples was a dispute about which one of them was the greatest. Can you imagine? I can. And you probably can too. It seems like church people aren't immune to this. As a matter of fact, they seem to be more susceptible to it. I go to pastors' conferences. I talk to pastors, and they say, those church people, some of those church people are the most power-hungry people I've ever met. Then I listen to people in churches and congregants that come from other churches and even here in our church and say, you know, those pastors are the most hung, you know, power-hungry people I've ever met. And there's a lot of it going on right here in the church of Jesus Christ that started in the first century. Remember the apostle John, don't you, had to rebuke a man named Diotrephes in 3 John. And he said, you know, that guy in the church is always wanting to be first. He's always promoting himself. He's never satisfied with the influence he has. He thinks he needs to be promoted and more important than other people. And he's always jockeying for position. He's always involved in power plays. He's always maneuvering for more influence and authority. We need to be very careful about this because it's so intoxicating. And it can be, in many ways, camouflaged by very culturally acceptable and even ecclesiastically acceptable methods and means. And it looks very normal and very acceptable to a lot of us is that's just the way we are. We need to be really careful because it has an insidious nature to it. It can start to corrupt our hearts and our lives and get us to focus on things that God never wants us to focus on. It can get us to do things we wouldn't normally do. It would get us to use people and circumstances in ways we would normally not 
do it if we weren't under this spell of wanting to have more influence and power in life. This morning, I want to warn you, if I can, from the lives of four individuals in 2 Samuel chapter 3. And if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn there and look at these four lives that you've already been introduced to, but let me reacquaint you with them real quickly. In 2 Samuel chapter 3, we have four people. King David, he's the up-and-coming king of Israel, anointed by Samuel many years ago, promised to be the successor to Saul. Saul is now dead, and he's reigning in Israel, but only over a part of Israel, the southern portion of Israel, the tribe of Judah. Not fully realized quite yet, but on his way. Second man I'd like to reacquaint you with was a man by the name of Ishbosheth. And Ishbosheth was Saul's son. He was one of the sons that was not killed in the battle on Mount Gilboa. He was the man that was placed in leadership in the northern part of Israel. Oh, they had lost Judah to David, but Ishbosheth was still on the throne, a very powerful man ruling over most of Israel. There was Ishbosheth's right hand man. His name was Abner, and Abner was the commander of the army, not only in Ishbosheth's day, but he had been in Saul's day. He was a decorated, successful strategist, one to whom many people answered. There was his counterpart in David's group. His name was Joab. Joab was the commander of David's armies, leading the, the cry into the battlefield. He was the strategist, the most decorated person in David's band. And so we have these four men highlighted in 2 Samuel chapter 3. And all of them are involved in this chapter in power plays. Power plays, let me tell you, that all miserably failed. And if we look carefully at this text, we'll see that they and their quest for authority and power end up shooting themselves in the foot. They end up being counterproductive in their quest to, quote-unquote, please God and do His will because they were intoxicated with this thirst for influence, power, and authority. Let's begin with King David. We're most acquainted with him, the man after God's own heart. We've already learned he's not immune to sin. As a matter of fact, he commits some of the most common sins we see even in the church today. It takes an interesting form, though, if you look at it in verse number 2. Verse number 2, the text says that sons were born to David in Hebron. Well, okay, that... It's not a big alarming statement. There's nothing seemingly wrong with that. But if you look carefully in verses 2 through 5, you'll see that as these six sons were listed, they all have different moms. <laughs> wow, you sure was divorced a lot of times, you're saying? No, that's not how it worked in those days. You Sunday school graduates know that in the ancient Near East, all the kings of that region and in ancient times used to gather around themselves a harem. They had many wives. And that was what you did, not only to satisfy your human desires. The whole point was to have a lot of sons so that you might have heirs to the throne, that you might build a big regal family. And not only that, if you look carefully in verse number 3, some of the wives that the kings took were part of political alliances. This particular son, born of this particular wife, was the daughter of a king in Jeshur to the north of Israel. And this was often the practice of the kings to have marriage with particular women of influence and power in families so that they could build their political base. And David was involved in that. And if you have been uh, enculturated, if you will, in the Old Testament society, you yawn your way through this and say, well, that's just the way it was in those days. But let's ask ourselves a serious question. If Jesus were on the scene, would he have been happy about this? Oh, I know God tolerated a lot of things in the Old Testament, including polygamy. But was this really God's plan? 
You do remember, don't you, back in Genesis chapter 1, that God didn't create Adam and Eve and Betty and Sue and Linda. You're, you're f familiar with that, right? It was Adam and Eve. That's not only a problem to the homosexual society, that's a problem to the polygamists of the Old Testament as well. It just doesn't fit. God planned marriage and he said, here's how it works. One man, one woman, this makes a marriage and that's the way I want it to be. And Jesus pointed that out, didn't he, in the New Testament? This is the way it was from, he says, this is a powerful Greek term, from the beginning. This was God's prototype. This was his plan. And if it wasn't enough for us to recognize that Genesis 1 taught it, all you got to do is start looking in the early part of the book of Genesis and see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph fail miserably and see all the heartache that comes from taking on more than one wife. And some of you in marriages can just extrapolate what that might be like. Six wives? Can you imagine that? At one time? Mm, we won't go there. But think about <laughs> what this must have been like. This is more than just companionship. This is political maneuvering. And every king was expected to be involved in it. And the kings were the worst violators of God's divine standard of a man and a woman. Six wives, six sons. That was the important thing for kings. Drop your eyes, if you would, down to verse number 12. If I can skip ahead in this story just a little bit, we'll talk about the defection of Abner in a minute. But Abner, the right-hand man of Ishbosheth, decides to defect. And he comes to David and he wants to make a deal. And David says, fine, I'll make a deal with you, verse 13. But one demand I've got. I want one thing from you. Verse 13, middle of the verse. Do not come into my presence unless you bring Michael, the daughter of Saul, when you come to see me. And those of you who have been in our series or read the book of 1 Samuel, you remember this. This was David's first wife. David's first wife that he was given by King Saul when he was on the ends with Saul and had just killed Goliath and things were looking bright for David and Saul said, here's my daughter, Michael, you marry her and marry into the family. Well, of course, when things went bad between David and Saul and David split and became a fugitive, this marriage was, for all intents and purposes, it was over and her life went on and she had another husband and things moved on for her and things moved on for David. Now, it wasn't that David said, you know, I got six wives, but seven would really make it perfect. You know what I'm saying? If I just had a seventh, I got an empty bedroom here, or, you know, I got, a, I got space, whatever. That wasn't his thought. And it wasn't that Michael was sitting there in, in her home saying, you know, I just miss those days with David. He was such a wonderful husband. It was nothing like that. If you read between the lines in this particular passage, you'll recognize that David's intent in marrying Michael again was not that he would fulfill some desire he had in his life of companionship with his childhood bride. It's nothing like that. It's that if he can get back in with Saul's family, if he could marry back in and if the people of Saul's dynasty and the tribe of Benjamin could recognize that he was part of the family again, perhaps those other 10 tribes out there in the north that don't really fully embrace me right now, perhaps they would embrace me. And so David used his marriage to do it. How do I know this wasn't just some convenient thing? Because look at the rest of this text. It says in verse 15, so Ishbosheth gave orders to have her taken away from her husband. Can you imagine? I mean, you've been married to this gal 15 years. Things are going great. Got a fine relationship. You're raising your kids together. All of a sudden, this guy in fancy clothes comes to the door and says, your wife, you know what? She's gone. We're taking her away. The guy she was married to 15 years ago wants her back. What? No way. Forget it. And that's what their husband thought. Verse 16, her husband, however, went with her, weeping behind her all the way. 
And finally, Abner has to say to this guy, get out of here, it's over, forget it. David was willing to break up this family so that he could build a political alliance. What was he doing? He was using marriage as a means to leverage power. And that's just not right. Polygamy in and of itself is not right. But using relationships in general is not right. Now, I don't think many of you are tempted to become polygamous this week to get a promotion at work. That's probably not where you're living, right? Polygamy is not your temptation, I trust. If it is, talk to me afterwards. But if it's not, though it was a cultural acceptable practice for the kings to practice polygamy to gain political alliances and gain power, it's not that way today. But it is in vogue, wouldn't you say, to use relationships in various forms to gain power? Don't you see that in our lives we can do the same thing? You know what, let me just say categorically, that is wrong. Number one on your outline, if you're taking notes, avoid the mistake of David. Don't use relationships to gain power. Don't use relationships to gain power. Does it work? You bet it works. You learned it in junior high. So did I, right? Brenda Smith, the most beautiful eighth grader in all of the world. But you know, she was a year older than me. And you know what that's like when you're in junior high. There's no possible chance you can get her to even know that you're alive if she's one grade ahead of you. But she had a little brother, and he was in my grade. And I didn't much care for her little brother, but I thought, you know, if I could become buddies with him, I bet I could come over to his house for dinner. Who knows? I may get asked to spend the night at their house. I don't know, but I bet I can get close to her. And so, in our carnal, sinful, fleshly, depraved, fallen little minds, we learn real quick that we can use relationships to get what we want. I don't really want a relationship with him, but I'd like to have a relationship with him because it can get me what I want. We do it all the time. It happens in the corporate world every five minutes, doesn't it? If I can get close to that person, then I can get that. Now, there's a difference between I know someone who may be able to help and I need to get to know someone who can help me. You understand the difference, don't you? God never intended relationships to be something we use. People aren't things that we use. People are persons that we love, and that's a huge difference. Loving people is not a means to an end. It is an end in itself. Don't use people. David was into using people to gain power. There's another man here I told you about. His name is Ishbosheth. He is the ruling king in the northern tribe of Israel. If you'd look in verse number six, jump back up to verse number six, he's got a little problem in his kingdom. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David was going on, and Abner had been strengthening his own position in the house of Saul. Now, Ishbosheth is ruling over the house of Saul, over the Benjamites, and over all the northern tribes of Israel. But he's got a guy in his kingdom, his dad's old commander, who's his commander of the armies, and he keeps strengthening his position. Now, I'm assuming now in verse number seven, what's about to transpire is part of Ishbosheth's paranoia. This guy keeps creeping up and taking more and more positions of authority and getting more and more influence in the kingdom, and I don't like that. It says in verse 7, Now Saul had a concubine named Rizpah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why did you sleep with my father's concubine? Now, the text is pretty you know, uh, clear about what happens in people's lives, and it does not ever say in this passage that he did have sex with Rizpah. I mean, there's no evidence of that, but there's an accusation, and the accusation comes on the heels of the statement that Abner keeps gaining position. So here comes this accusation. Maybe it was based on nothing. 
Maybe it was based to quell his, his up-and-coming uh, influence in the kingdom. Maybe it was that he really suspected something and Rizpah and Abner were making eyes at each other in a meeting or something. I don't know. But Ishbosheth says, that's enough. You've been sleeping with that concubine, haven't you? And that would be a bad thing because that would be as though he was trying to usurp the place of Saul. And that would be a bad thing. And so Ishbosheth says, what are you doing? Abner blows up. I can't believe you're accusing me of this. Verses 8 through 10 talk about his response. But look at verse 11. This sums up Ishbosheth's whole mindset. It said, Ishbosheth did not dare to say another word to Abner because, underline it, he was afraid of him. Why was he afraid? He was afraid of Abner because Abner might supplant his leadership. He could perhaps take over the influence that Ishbosheth had. Ishbosheth was paranoid. We're learning about power plays today from Pastor Mike Fabares, drawn from the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. You're listening to Focal Point in a sermon titled, Some Losing Strategies for People of Influence. Now you can download the study notes and listen to the full-length message on demand when you visit focalpointradio.org. And while you're there, you'll notice a brand new resource available called The Essential Scriptures, a handbook of the biblical texts for key doctrines. All good theology is grounded in God's Word, and yet sometimes it's hard to keep track of which scripture supports which doctrines. Well, that's where this book comes in. Author, scholar, and theologian Kevin Zuber gives you the biblical underpinnings for every doctrine, organized into easy-to-follow theological topics. That address again is focalpointradio.org. Well, Mike, Christians have been saying the truth is under attack for decades. But wow, I don't think I've ever seen it this bad before. Yeah, Dave, the ideological battles that were taking place 30 years ago, those seem very tame compared to what's going on today. I mean, think about it. Just even the idea of defining a woman or a man. I mean, that men can get pregnant, that the, these doctors are out there trying to provide, uh, you know, gender-affirming care. It's just crazy, right? The people fighting for their right uh, to continue to slaughter the unborn. And it seems to be getting worse. And it's no wonder that the Bible is under attack, right? In the world's eyes, there's no such thing as the truth, right? Truth that sits there and tells us how to live. And yet, if you listen to Focal Point Radio, you know that, that the Bible's black and white. It's clear, right? There's no my truth, your truth. There's just the truth. And the truth doesn't change. It doesn't ever change. It doesn't matter what's popular today or tomorrow or in our culture or that culture, right? What matters is the truth. It's under attack, maybe like never before, but now's the time for us to continue to double down. We're not going to throw in the towel. We're not going to waver. We've got a responsibility, a God-given duty to defend and declare the truth of God's word. No apologies, right? That's what we do every single day here on Focal Point. That's our commitment. And I'm calling, inviting our faithful listeners this Christmas season to give in support of seeing this continue on through Focal Point. Your year-end gifts to Focal Point, they provide a financial means that are necessary to send this program out each and every day across the airwaves, online, and through our mobile app, that is just, it's so critical. It's essential. And we'd ask you to stand with us as we declare the truth, God's truth, in a culture where truth is under attack. Thank you so much for your special year-end gifts. And we couldn't do this, obviously, without friends like you. Call 888-320-5885 to give your special year-end gift to Focal Point. Or go online to focalpointradio.org. And remember, we'll send you the book, The Essential Scriptures, as a thank you for your gift today. 
You might also consider joining the team of monthly supporters called Focal Point Partners. These are people just like you who listen to the program and value reaching the world with the truth of God's Word. Our partners help us minister to others around the world by providing free access to all of Pastor Mike's sermons, devotionals, and videos, and helping cover our radio airtime costs. So sign up today when you go online to focalpointradio.org or by calling 888-320-5885. If you prefer sending your donation by mail, write to Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. Well, I'm your host, Dave Drewy. Be sure to come back tomorrow for a popular Christmas edition of Ask Pastor Mike. That's Friday on Focal Point. Hey there, Pastor Mike here. We're almost out of time, but before we go, I want to personally invite you to contact us here. Let us know how we can be praying for you. Head on over to focalpointradio.org and click the contact page or send me a note on Facebook, facebook.com slash Pastor Mike or twitter.com slash Pastor Mike. Can't wait to hear from you. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.